Good morning. We're going to be transitioning to our time of reading scripture. Um, today's scripture passage is from 2 Corinthians. We'll be reading chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And this can be found, and I just lost my spot, so I'll tell you in a second. On page 17, I know that. Seventeen sixty in your pew Bible. Second Corinthians from verse from chapter eight, verse one. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work that, so that your eager willingness to do to, excuse me, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Good morning, High Point. Next week, uh, the church will begin a series on the book of Philippians. I encourage you to, uh, to be here to participate in that. Uh, I'm sad that we're not going to be here throughout the entirety of that series. Uh, for those of you don't, who don't know me, my name is Eric Hesse. Our family, we serve as High Point missionaries in Berlin, Germany, and we are about finished with our year uh, home here in the States. We're getting ready to leave Madison, head to Cincinnati, and then back to Berlin beginning in August. So Philippians next week. Um, as we begin our time this morning and look at 2 Corinthians, can we just pause a moment and pray together? Let's pray. Be gracious to us, O Lord, for to you do we cry all the day. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. God, may your grace shine today like a beacon. Glorify yourself in these words this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, CFS or 
clenched fist syndrome is a real thing. It's a disorder, a real medical disorder where patients have flexion finger contractures. In other words, the hand becomes stuck like it's grasping something, holding on to something. Strange thing is, there's no known cause for this. It's an unconscious response. I think there's something similar that happens in a spiritual sense with the material resources that we have. Without even knowing it, without even realizing it unconsciously, we exhibit clenched fist syndrome with our stuff, our things. None of us are immune. Scarcity, for example, brings out the worst of this condition. I'm curious, was there any pandemic buying here in the States? So this is, this is the picture of our grocery store at the onslaught of the pandemic. Nothing's left, nothing, it's crazy. This is spiritual clenched fist syndrome in action. Uh, it's kind of funny, Germans have, uh, have a word for um, pandemic buying, it's, it's called Hamsterkauf, literally meaning hamster buy, to describe the, the hoarding of, of more than any normal person actually needs. I think that's a great word, isn't it? Hamsterkauf. Uh, funny enough, uh, shortly after the pandemic, too, this, this next bit of graffiti popped up. Uh, <laughs> Gollum proclaiming, my precious. <laughs> the sad reality is, is that the human condition, we hold wealth and material resources to our own detriment. According to the United Nations, while the richest 10% of adults in the world own 85% of, of the global household wealth, the, the bottom half collectively owns 1%. Even more strikingly, that the average person in the top 10% owns nearly three times the wealth of the average person in the bottom 10%. Wealth inequality is real. And the more wealth and material resources you have, the likely it is that the harder it is to let that stuff go. David Garland is right. Generosity is not something innate to human beings. We like to get and to hold. So let's, let's talk about our, our generosity for a second came across a, a 2020 uh, Christianity Today article that examined the status, the state of Christian generosity. And according to this one particular source, nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. Uh, households that make more than $75,000 are on record the least generous. Nationwide, Christians give about 2.5% of their income by comparison, during the Great Depression, that stat was 
37% of all those who consider themselves evangelicals do not give to churches at all. Uh, According to a study from the University of Notre Dame, uh, when it comes to giving away 10% of finances, only 2.7% of people, religious or non-religious, fall into this category. Other studies confirm this somewhat abysmal picture. Age factors into generosity as well. 84% of millennials report giving less than $50 to charity per year, even though charitable giving counts high on their list of priorities. Most generous generation is my generation, Gen X. Uh, The most, uh, the, the, the least generous generation are those are the baby boomers, and the most generous generation, I'm sorry, I'm goofing up my stats here. We need to grow in our generosity. (laughs) (laughs) The most generous generation are those older than the baby boomers. What I I wanna make clear to you this morning is that there's a stark contrast between what we do with surplus and what God does with surplus. In an age of inflation and wealth preservation, the kingdom of God is different, or it should be. So if you're taking notes this morning, you like to jot things down, here's the big idea from the text this morning. God's superabundant grace produces a counterintuitive, paradoxical, superabundant generosity that should result in material equity within the body of Christ. This is how we know when grace is operative among us. See, generosity is a visible sign of God's grace. So as we go through this text this morning, I think we should repeatedly ask ourselves, what is the evidence this grace of God has been given to me, to us, to this church? So in this text, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15, Paul describes two encouragements to help you and me excel at the grace of giving. So before we look at the text, a a very, very brief, short biblical theology of wealth. So biblically speaking, wealth and prosperity, material resources are positive but incredibly dangerous both at the same time. We have to hold those two things in tension. In the Old Testament, wealth is a sign of God's blessing. In the New Testament, Jesus makes the right stewardship of the financial resources a critical factor in following him. In the New Testament, it is a guarantee that material resources will compete for a person's allegiance to God. Matthew 6, 19, Luke 16. Wealth is seen as something deceitful in Mark 4 and can distract people from taking care of their own spiritual condition. Some might even forfeit eternal life because they profited and gained the whole world at the cost of their soul. Mark 8.36. James, for instance, hammers rich Christians and in chapter 2 makes the case that unless Christians use their wealth to help poorer people, poorer Christians can't claim to have saving faith. 
stored up riches, self-indulgent, luxurious living will be used as evidence against people in God's coming judgment. So in sum, it is dangerous to trust in stored up wealth. Psalm 52.7 says, those who trust in the abundance of their riches seek refuge in their own destruction. The reality is that each of us are stewards of a wealth that belongs to God. What we have is not really ours. So with this background in mind, let's now zero in on the text in 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing in this particular part of his letter about the collection for famine relief in the region of of Judea, near Jerusalem. Paul is is collecting this offering to help uh, churches in the area, and and so one of the purposes of this letter and this part of the letter is to stimulate the generosity of the Corinthian church. And Paul does this in some sense by playing one church against another to provoke their generosity, a little bit of twisting, uh, apostolic twisting of arms, so to speak. So he, he appeals to the exemplary generosity of the Macedonian churches, in order to make the Corinthians provoke them to be more generous. Now, it's interesting that what's described in this passage is church-to-church giving, although I think the principles we're gonna talk about apply to the individual level as well. So let's, let's look at the text. Open your Bibles if you have your Bible with me, with you. The Corinthian church had surplus in numerous ways, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness or zeal. They had abundant surplus, but they weren't generous. So here's the, here's the first encouragement. Excelling at the grace of giving starts by giving yourself fully to God. So look at verses one through seven. Excelling at the grace of giving starts by giving yourself fully to God. The kind of generosity we should aspire to can't be manufactured in our own strength. The kind of generosity described in this text is a byproduct of divine grace. Grace is one of the operative themes in chapters eight and nine. It appears about 10 different times. God's super abundant grace produces this counterintuitive, paradoxical, superabundant generosity. And so if generosity is an act of grace, then the way to be more generous is the same as response to all of God's grace. You receive it. It's a gift. In other words, your generosity flows from your devotion to Christ. Excelling at the grace of giving starts by giving yourself fully to God first. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Many people are generous. Uh, Some of the most generous people I know aren't followers of Christ, and I would imagine the same is true for you as well. This passage isn't about philanthropy. It's about radical Christian generosity. And when generosity flows from grace, 
it takes on a distinctive that makes it, I think, uniquely Christian. And so Paul takes this example, the Macedonian churches, the church of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and he says, look at this church. See, the paradox of the the Macedonian churches is that their generosity bubbled up from a combination of severe affliction, abundant joy, and extreme poverty. It's the combination of these three things that Paul says put together made them wealthy. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have combined and overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And the, the word that, that's used to describe the depth of their poverty suggests the lowest level of poverty. And our response is, seriously? Who does that? How? Who is generous through severe affliction, extreme poverty, and maintains joy in the midst of that? How is that possible? And Paul even seems a bit caught off guard by this in verse 5. It was unexpected, their response. The only explanation for this kind of response is grace. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonian churches. It's because of grace that they gave beyond their means. They actually begged to participate in the collection for the Judean churches. It's astonishing. Now this is really important. The reason the Macedonian churches were able to respond this way is explained in verse five. Look at verse five. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The sequence here, I think, is hugely important. They were generous because they had first surrendered to God. Too frequently, we reverse this. We respond to the need without having first given ourselves fully to the Lord, forgetting that what God wants more from us is the sacrifice of a surrendered heart rather than our actual sacrifice. Ideally, it's both, and in the right order. And when surrender precedes our generosity, it's likely to produce a generosity like the Macedonian church. The only way to excel at the grace of giving is to approach your generosity with a surrendered heart. I have an incredibly generous friend. Um, This guy is is amazing. Uh, he's an inspiration to me. 
uh, his, his goal, his goal at the end of every month is to have a zero balance in his account. He gives all his surplus away. He's sold all his investments because he takes seriously the command to not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And by the way, this guy's no, no crackpot. He did his PhD in New Testament at Trinity College in Bristol looking at the rich and their relationship with riches in 1 Timothy. The guy is brilliant. But, but here's the thing. God has given this man the faith to respond this way, and he does so willingly, gladly, cheerfully, because his decision to live the way he is living flows from complete surrender. But to go out and try to emulate what he does without surrender would be really hard. It works for him because the decision that he's made flows from this life that is completely and fully surrendered to the Lord. So by all means, look to the example of others, those who are so generous with what God has entrusted to them. Emulate them, yes. Let their example inspire you to be more generous. But first and foremost, in your generosity, Submit to God. Surrender fully to the Lord and then to the need at hand. Put yourself in a position by surrender to receive his grace so that that grace bubbles up into a paradoxically counterintuitive, generous way that gives, makes uh, the world give attention to what we're doing and glorify the giver of all good gifts. Some of you might already be incredibly generous. In fact, I know you are. This is an incredibly generous church. Great. Keep it up. Good work. The question you have to ask yourself this morning is this. Are you surrendered? Have you surrendered? Is your generosity flowing from surrender? Which begs the question, how does one know if they've surrendered? living from this posture of surrender. Well, I think there's a couple indicators. When you surrender, there's a freedom and a, a largeness to life. There's peace. And like the Macedonian churches, there's abundant joy. I mean, the, the image I have of living in this posture of complete surrender is is uh, Tim Burton's character Andy in the Shawshank Redemption when he busts out of prison. He's in the, the canal and it's raining. He's got his hands up and he's just like smiling. Like that's the picture I have of a surrendered life. Surrender is the means by which one enters the kingdom and it has to happen repeatedly, ongoing throughout the Christian life. I mean, it's possible that maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a position of surrender. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with Christ. I mean, God brought me recently in this last winter to a place where I needed to surrender. There was some things that I was living in 
in my life in terms of desiring platform and voice and all related to stepping down and leading a church. I was listening to the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast and God just brought me to this moment of surrender where like I had been carrying things and holding on to something that I wasn't meant to hold on to. And in response, in that place of surrender, just letting go, it's like, why did I wait so long? See, true, true giving requires giving of yourself, not just giving money. And all that matters this morning is this. Are you surrendered? Excelling at the grace of giving starts by giving yourself fully to God. Well, there's a second encouragement in this text. It comes from verses 8 through 15. Look at, look at this portion. We can excel at material, uh, giving away material resources because we've been made rich in more significant ways. See, there's a problem in the Corinthian church. They weren't ready to give. They weren't ready to help with the famine relief. They had delayed giving for a year, verse 10. Paul's writing to fix their readiness problem. He wants them to complete their promise. And his way of encouraging them to do this is by reminding them of their identity in Christ. Verse nine, Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that they might become rich. In other words, the the Corinthian church had been made rich in more significant spiritual ways which made giving away their material resources for the famine relief really a no-brainer. By the way, keep in mind as we go through this that giving is always proportional to one's means. Verse 12, according to what one has. The self-emptying of Christ for Christians should, yes, lead them to empty their pocketbooks for others, but only in proportion to what they have. I mean, even the Macedonian church gave according to their means. Verse 3. Their means happen to be extreme poverty, severe affliction, and abundant joy. But they gave according to their means. So look, look, look more closely at verse 9. I mean, you guys know verse 9. Verse 9 is it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's possible verse 9 uh, was an, an early uh, a hymn in the, in the early church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. By the way, the poverty of Christ here isn't physical, material poverty. It's poverty of spirit. It's it's the poverty of one who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what Christ gave up. And these poetically beautiful words get at the very core of the gospel message. God's grace through Christ is, 
It's the utterly undeserved, royally free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God active in and through Jesus for you and for me. Amen? By the way, if you are here this morning and you don't know this grace, you can. You can. By faith in Christ, the grace of Christ overflows to Christians, enriching them in incalculable ways. That's God's promise to you. Now, here, today. It's important to note that this promise of grace isn't the promise of future grace. It, this grace is meant to be experienced and lived in and swam in now. The Christian has been made rich by this grace now. We, we too quickly forget the reality of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's, that's our story now. That's our identity now. And it's, it's the present, ongoing, continual experience of this enriching grace that fuels Christian generosity. So if you look at your life and, and you see that you aren't as generous as you wish, if you're not as ready to give as you would like, if you find your heart being stingy, the problem isn't a matter of will or priorities or lack of knowledge about which cause to get behind and where the best ministry is. Lack of generosity is a grace problem. Paul's point is not that Christians become poor like Jesus, but in light of their indebtedness to Christ's lavish gift, they should give liberally. Notice, he doesn't command them to give here. Verse eight, although he could. He could use his apostolic weight and command them. He doesn't, he, he appeals to grace. He wants their giving to overflow into superabundant generosity because of the superabundant generosity and enriching grace of Christ. And one of the results of grace-filled, surrendered generosity is equity. Fairness. I think the NIV calls it equality. Look at the text, verses 13 and 14. Regarding this collection from the church for the Judean churches, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, Paul says, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. That word fairness, 
falls in the family of words related to justice. Paul wants justice in the churches. I love how Murray Harris paraphrases verse 13. He says this, our aim in this whole enterprise is not that other people should get relief from their financial burdens at the cost of your financial hardship. No, our concern is for the equalizing of burdens. Paul's vision for the church is no one ever going short. That's radical. In a world that is disgusted with wealth inequality, the church must point the way forward and shine as an example of what the proper grace-fueled redistribution of wealth and material resources looks like. See, there's a, there's a spiritual principle behind this. The pattern is derived from God's provision of manna during the Exodus. Look at verse 15. Paul quotes Exodus 16, 18 in verse 15. You remember the story, right? God graciously provided the manna in the wilderness and people were instructed to collect it. Some gathered more and had a surplus. Others gathered and didn't have enough. And the manna was redistributed after it was gathered so that the need of those who lacked was met out of the surplus of those who had gathered more than enough. And in the end, in the end there was fairness, equity, trying to accumulate more than one's fair share, hoarding it, clutching it with clenched fists was a desperately futile waste of energy because it ended up as a pile of rot. The same is true now. That's the principle. Out of your surplus, you meet the needs of others. The, the generous response of the, the early church in Acts 2, I think, is another illustration of this. I mean, this is Pentecost Sunday. Acts 2, following this Peter's proclamation in Acts 2, it says in Acts 2, 44 and 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possession and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What I think is happening there is that the church had been made rich in spiritual ways through the Spirit at Pentecost, and the knowledge and the application of that led to radical generosity and material equity within the body of Christ, meeting of needs. So the question that needs to be asked of us this morning is, do we actually do this? I mean, how Christian is our giving in this regard? A giving that I think produces equity across racial and ethnic borders as an act of fellowship and solidarity within the body of Christ. That should be the norm. 
And certainly I think in some extreme cases, we do do this. Like I think of the, the response, the general response of Christians related to the church in Ukraine. Like, yeah, the church is doing this. But what about in less extreme, less visible cases? I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure we do this. I mean, think about this. If there's, if there's a surplus, actually, I would say this church, of all the churches I've been to this past year, this church does this about as well as any. So kudos to you guys. But if there's a surplus, does the church in general, like does the white church give so that it results in material equity within the black church or the Hispanic church or the Korean church and vice versa? Are the resources flowing both ways to meet needs within the body of Christ? Does the urban and suburban church give to produce material equity in the rural church and vice versa? Does the church in the West think this way about the church in the global South and Latin America and Africa and Asia? I think in response to this text, each congregation needs to evaluate its corporate giving. What about within the body here? Is your surplus meeting the needs of those who at the moment are are lacking? May this be the norm here at High Point. May this be the norm flowing from a surrendered life in a response to being enriched by the grace of God. You know, part of actually living this out means that we swallow our pride and admit that we have needs. That's hard to do. I don't want to minimize that. It's really hard to do. But the norm should be that nobody goes short within the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Familiar with the social media platform Reddit? Some of you maybe, yeah. If not, you're not missing anything, okay? <laughs> but if you are, I mean, there's a, there's a subreddit for almost every topic under the sun. I, I uh, occasionally frequent the subreddit atheism just to see how atheists think and what their response is and how they view Christians. It's fascinating and terribly sad. The, the trope on the subreddit uh, atheism, the trope there of Christians is that of the greedy tele-evangelist. Like that's what atheists think Christians are. Every Christian, every church is obsessed with material gain. Certainly radical generosity changes that trope. But radical generosity alongside a surrendered life makes 1 Peter 2 come true. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The world is watching how we handle our material 
resources. As we wind down here this morning, the only way, the only way our giving changes long-term, both individually, as a family, as a church, is by a deeper encounter with God and his grace through Christ. I'll ask again the question that I started with this morning. What is the evidence this grace of God has been given to you? At the end of the day, that's all that really matters. And that's God's invitation to you here now to receive his grace. The stark, stark contrast between what we do with surplus and what God does with surplus. This Pentecost Sunday, let's remember God's liberal, gracious gift of the Spirit and Peter's words to the crowd in Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Amen? Amen. As we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, let us celebrate this gift of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins, both of which are made possible through Christ's sacrifice, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, my sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. So let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table this morning. Let's look up in adoration. Let's look back in commemoration. Let's look inward in examination. Let's look around in consideration. Let's look outward in proclamation. And let's look forward in anticipation. If you need a communion cup, please raise your hand nice and high and someone will find you where you're sitting and make sure you have uh, the elements. If you don't yet know the grace of Christ, and a resistance to surrendering to his grace, we would ask that you withhold from partaking of the elements. But we also want to say, if you know, if you hear the voice of God calling to you now to surrender to Christ and to receive his grace, by all means, say yes to that voice and partake of the elements as a new member of God's family. Let's worship together and prepare our hearts in celebration of communion.